Hallelujah. I'm feeling good. Oh, you may not be feeling good, but I'm feeling good. Let me begin by saying there is no I in team. Right? We've all heard that before. Most of us have heard it. You know, it's about the team effort, people. It's about shared responsibilities, working together versus going it alone. Well, this morning, I'm going to go the opposite direction. That's right. It is all about you and you alone. When it comes to our walk with God, our relationship with Him, and the place that you find yourself today at this moment with Him, it's about you. And I'm not going to rule out the importance and the influence of others and the necessity of community. But when it comes to God's purpose for your life and the extent that you are fulfilling that purpose, it's about you. And that's why we read Apostle Paul, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Hey guys, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one of us will receive his or her due. Things done in the body, which are either good or bad. We're going to stand alone before God. It's not a group activity. It's not a couple's retreat. It's not a church event. It's not a family affair. It's you and God. It's the reason why we're told that sometimes when people have a near-death experience, they say your life flashes before your eyes. It's not the church's life that flashes before your eyes. It's your life that flashes. I still remember the day, it was a number of years ago, it was before I came to Calgary. I stood on the, on the golf course, on the tee box, it's raining, and I, I throw that in because it's, it helps you understand what happened. And I was in the midst of another incredible gate, great drive. My brother was about 20 feet out looking for his drive. He really messed it up. So I'm going, well, he's there. I go to swing and I slip, but I contact. Within a split second, he was down. I nailed him right there. He never spoke of light flashing before his eyes at that moment because I don't think he even had time to do that. But I'll tell you what did happen. His whole perspective of life changed right after that moment. The whole golf game. Oh, this is beautiful out here. This is great. He was still alive, and that's what he was grateful for. You know, we've heard that saying, there's no atheists in a foxhole. And the thinking along that lines is that when we are threatened, when we are faced, well, maybe with the possibility of leaving this earth or maybe being held accountable, standing before that judgment before God, we start asking some questions when we're confronted with that. And so death or facing death has a way of, well, rearranging priorities. We all know this. Suddenly, a lot of those major issues become very minor. Case in point, the scripture we're going to look at today in the book of Jonah. We're very familiar with the fish story. Jonah is a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam. You know, after Elijah, before Amos and Hosea, we're told that Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that God flat out told to go speak to the Gentiles. And not just any Gentiles. We're told he had to go to Nineveh. Well, what's Nineveh? Nineveh was the Assyrians. These people had a really bad long record with the people of Israel. They were extremely cruel towards Israel. They caused a lot of problems over many, many years. And on top of that, 
Jonah's going, Nineveh is 800 miles away. Now, that's okay for us today. We could get there, but not when you're riding a horse or a camel or maybe even walking. That would have took weeks and months. So Jonah was a little frustrated, and he decides not to listen to God. We know the story. He runs the opposite direction. In the process, he encounters a storm as he takes a ship. He knows he's responsible for this. He's honest and brave enough to come to them saying, guys, it's my fault. God's, you know, God's coming after me for this. So they agree to toss him over the side. Along comes this large fish. Many say a whale. Some say, well, never really told. But in this context, there's a three-day period where we're told that Jonah, is in this darkness and in this stench of this fish and obviously facing the potential of death and he begins to reflect on life. He has a little more time than the split second between a golf ball hitting him or even the 30 seconds, by the way, is a point of interest that a man had on June of 2021. Michael Packard said he was diving, ended up in the whale's mouth for 30 to 40 seconds. He told the news that after jumping off the vessel in his scuba gear, he felt his huge bump and everything went dark. His first thought was, I got attacked by a shark. And then he said, I was in there and I felt around and he says, I didn't feel any teeth. And he realized it must have been a whale. And then he said, this is it. I'm going to die. He thought about his wife. He thought about his two boys. Then all of a sudden, he says, he went up. The whale on the surface erupted and started shaking its head, and I got thrown out in the air, landed in the water. I was free, and I just floated there. I couldn't believe it, and I'm here to tell you about it. So it did happen. But we read Jonah having a little more time to consider what's going on with his life, And he constructs a prayer. I'm sure there were a lot of prayers he did in those three days, but we have one recorded in Jonah chapter 2. Let me quickly read through it so you can grasp where I'm going this morning. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. I like this. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life, he says, was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Then he says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I'll go, you know, I, I, my first thought was centuries later, James is writing in his book, you know, consider it all pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And I'm thinking, was he ever thinking of Jonah? <laughs> like trials of all kinds. Have you ever been swallowed by a whale? Left for three days to think about your life. 
And yet we know that God uses these moments of desperation, whether it's life-threatening or fleeing, but despite the circumstances, people draws themselves to, to him. He just does. You know, one author wrote, Troubled times awaken them out of their haunted sleep of spiritual self-sufficiency into a serious search for the divine. Suffering, he says, plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. It has a way of doing that. For a lot of believers, trials have pulled them deeper into an experience of God's reality, even his love and his grace. A lot of times, moving them from this conceptual, abstract understanding of God and bringing it to reality. C.S. Lewis famously put it, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Here's the reality, friends. Like countless others, including Jonah, we're all sufferers. We all will suffer. Not one of us will escape pain. No one will escape death. So how do we get through it? How do you get through these moments of desperation without losing the best part of who you are and understanding who God is? There was a man who was about to lose his career and his wife, and he said, I always knew in principle Jesus is all that you need to get through, but you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Jonah reflects, says this prayer, and I read this prayer on one of my mornings, and one of the first things that struck me, because I'm always looking for the things, was ten times he says, I. Ten times he personalizes this point of his life between him and God. I, 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 I. Ten times. And just as every one of us will suffer, if not already in our lives, likewise, there will be many moments in our lives like Jonah, we're just running, we're fleeing, we're not anywhere near where we should be in our walk with God. And we will be forced, maybe through a death experience, but maybe through something else, to face that distance between us and God. And so maybe our prayers are not of desperation now for fear of health or something else, but it's just... Prayers are stagnant. They're not even there. Prayers aren't even a reality. It's just dry. And this is something we have to address with God alone. Not, not with our families or our spouses or our bosses or the churches, but it's our role in this dilemma. We have to start asking, what have I done and what do I got to do? What have I done to be here and what do I got to do? By the way, I was thinking... This would have been great. You know, animals have spoken in the past in the Bible. If we could have got the whale's perspective of this whole incident, since he did have inside information. Okay, I I had to throw that one out there. (laughs) But hey, Jonah's words will have to do. They'll point us to the land. You may be vomited out, but you will reach the land. And so you're going 10 points. He is serious. He's going to 3 o'clock. No, they're very brief. I'm just whetting your appetite with each one of them. I just want you to see it. Then you can look on your own. So don't panic quite yet. So the first I, Jonah says, in the prayer, says, I call to the Lord. See, this goes without saying. 
that we got to recognize, is God God? That's the question we have to be asking. You know, again, it's one thing to acknowledge God. It's quite something else to understand God and believe in God. So the scriptures are full of all of these verses. No God, no God, understand God, no God, seek me and find me. In fact, Paul says about wisdom, he says, knowing God is going to give you wisdom. But then Paul writes in Ephesians 1.17 that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's his prayer for people all the time. You need to know God better. Because he says later in that whole text, he says, in the knowing of God, you're going to find out all kinds of things, like the hope that is yours, like the glorious inheritance that is yours, like the power that is evident that was even used in the power to resurrect Jesus. He says, that can be yours. But you got to know me. You can't believe what you don't know. You have to know me. And again, the onus is on us. God doesn't force himself on you. He invites us to benefit all these things if we just take this incredible offer that God wants us to know Him. I had a lady once who didn't attend the church that we, I was pastoring at the time, but she uh, wanted help from the church. And in the process of dealing with her, uh, trying to say, I'll meet the need, and I'm not just going to hand out cash, she got very frustrated with me, and she made this comment. She said, well, then what good is church for? <laughs> okay, I had a moment. Pastors have many moments. This is one of them. I simply looked her in the face and said, well, you... You should come once in your life just to find out. People, we need to find out about God. How many times we, I, I run into people that they're so mad and angry, but they haven't spent really an ounce of time to understand and know their God, but now they become professionals on them when things don't go the way they want. Out of all the major religions, Christianity is the only one that teaches that God came to earth in Christ and became subject to suffering and death. In other words, the God I know has wounds. And that, that explains a lot to me. It doesn't answer all my questions, but it helps me understand that maybe on this side of the grave, I will never understand fully evil and suffering. I will never understand. I just found out this morning, I, I married a couple and their son Adam was in that plane that crashed in Kananaskis, one of many that just died. He was a ring bearer with my daughter, Danielle. He had a little girl. I don't understand the randomness of this, a worship leader in that plane. I mean, I don't get it. But now at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that this happens because God does not love us. It cannot be that he does not care. Because as I read Scripture, as I get to know God, I know that he is committed to our ultimate happiness so much so that he himself is willing to plunge into the depth of suffering himself. He understands it. He's been there. And he has a plan, yes, eventually to eradicate it all, but up until that point, we won't fully grasp it. But I'm getting to know God and beginning to work through that. Do you know this God? The second I, Jonah prayed, I called for help. I cried for help. See, we got to ask. Pride has got to be tossed out the window. It's the whole thing behind AA. Honesty. And so many of us live in denial. 
In addiction recovery, they will always bring this about to the reality that you need to deal with. And so I found one website that read this. But the stigma of addiction, denial, and pride often prevent people from admitting a problem, seeking the help they need. In a way, deciding to actively work toward recovery simply means we have the same pride of ownership in ourselves as we do in the vehicles we drive. Pride. We have to get rid of it. Have you ever noticed the weight that Scripture puts on pride and the hatred toward it? Pride cometh before the, wolf, the fall. We know that from Chronicles. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. We read in Scripture that not only are we to fear the Lord, but then the Lord says, I hate pride and arrogance. Well, why the hate? Because this is what's going to keep us from knowing God, somehow believing I can handle this myself. I don't need to spend that time in, in the Word and with God and in prayer. Come on, as you know, I can handle this. It's really no difference than the blindness that you see in the show Hoarders. Okay, I'm always amazed. And it's not just messy hoarders, by the way. You can have wealthy hoarders as well. But they live in this filth. They're clueless to the environment that they find themselves in. And like I said, hoarding doesn't always have to be a messy thing. I, I walked into a garage once when I was looking at a house that the, the brother-in-law was showing me. There was more value in his garage than I've ever had and will have in my life. Now, I may not say much. <laughs> it was just a VW gun. No, it was a lot more than a VW. Now, I hoard. You look in my garage, I may not have priceless cars, but I got a lot of tools. In fact, when I sold our house and we came to Airdrie two years ago, I found 40 hammers in my garage. 40. I hope I had as many nails as I had hammers. I just put a pile together and called my neighbors over. Grab what you want. Hoarding. First John 2.16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from this world. And then Scripture takes this even further. It's our next eye that Jonah reflects upon. It's simply that I don't need help from God, but that without him, I'm totally lost. And so the third eye, Jonah prayed, I've been banished from your, from your sight, God. We know the verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I understand that, you know, a lot of times in our culture, we'd rather more emphasize the love of God, you know, versus the severity of being banished from His sight because of our sinfulness and those type of things. And in the same way that we often can't understand fully suffering and pain, we sometimes also struggle with justice and consequences and sin and its severity and what it creates in our lives. I heard a Facebook video and the guy's talking to a street preacher and the preacher's talking about sin. The guy couldn't wrap his mind. What do you mean sin? He couldn't even figure out, well, what is sin? Let's get rid of that word. It's one of the words they want to pull out of the dictionaries. See, we want happy endings. And so in the process, I'm willing to bend to two principles and maybe a few verses to fit my theology. And so then I'll pick up a book from a Christian author and it'll say, Love Wins All. And the premise of the whole book is that there is no bad judgment after that really God loves everyone so much that we're all there. Because we don't like that other side of it. Somehow we lose sight of knowing God. What's knowing God? Well, God's perfection. God's very nature is infinitely righteous. 
It's in him. It's all of him. And all that he does, he cannot go against himself. The righteousness of the divine is exercised thus in all that he does, in everything, all his activities. And it's why then he imposes these righteous laws, these moralities and all of these things on his creation, on his creatures. Because God must execute righteously and expects the same from us. Here's a simple way to look at that. He can't turn a blind eye to injustice. None of us would appreciate a judge that just lets anyone off the hook because, well, I felt bad for him. We would cry out, justice. That's not justice. That's not fair. So Acts 17.31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Revelations 19, we are warned. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice. He wages war. Let's not fool ourselves. God is love. As we're going to see in our next point, it's a pivotal point, but he is also just. He has to be. It's who he is. So the fourth eye, Jonah prayed, says, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. <laughs> and this is where I came across God's love, this, this scandalous love of God. And in looking at his justice, we, we, we must never forget the love that drives that justice. See, God has every right to cast judgment upon us. He, he has every right to preach hell and damnation and brimstone, leave us shaking in our sinful boots. He has every right to give us the eternity we deserve. He does. And yet, while Jesus did speak of hell, he didn't stop with hell. Instead, he said, I chose to suffer our punishment He took upon himself the retribution that was deservedly ours so that we could experience God's presence. And that defies all human thinking and reason. And then rather than just abandon us to our rebellious state or in our fleeing or in our running through Jesus, he says, I'm calling you back. I know you're full of flaws and weaknesses and failures and that you are constantly, you know, Jonah said, again, (laughs) I come to your holy temple. You know, I call this the revolving door syndrome. How many times? Hey, God. Oh, sorry, God. Hey, God. Oh, sorry, God. But that's the whole basis and foundation and premise of God's kingdom. You are not going to be able to do this on your own. We will fail miserably on countless occasions. I need to know and understand God and, and his presence and the works of his grace and his mercy has got to be a daily fan of mine every day. Matthew 18, 21, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, by the way, how many times should I forgive a guy over there? Seven times? He thought he was being pretty holy with the number seven. Seven? Can you imagine God only forgave us seven times? But before my first birthday, I already messed that one up and I didn't even know what I was doing. It just came naturally. We are like that. So that ties into our fifth eye. Jonah prayed, I sank down. 
See, he demonstrated the revolving door syndrome to its perfection. Jonah, we are told upon repentance in the belly in this fabulous prayer that he musters and puts before his God is finally spewed out and vomited onto the land. And as you go further in the story, he follows up on what God says, okay, I'll go to Nineveh, I'll go to those Assyrians, right? And then he gets really mad at God for forgiving them. (laughs) And I'm going... We just can't help ourselves. Mountaintop experience in the fish of a the belly of a fish. Oh Lord, you're still forgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gets kicked out. In fact, the verse says to the roots of the mountains, he says, I sank. That's how low I went. And then I get out and I go and then I become furious because God saved them. His hatred must have been deep. A lot of history there. Can't be too hard on them, can we? Because we all know our deep-seated angers, people that have hurt us so bad that we would pray more so for the wrath of God, the judgment of God to come upon them. And so here was Jonah in the despair and darkness saying, God's forgiveness, I need it again. Here I am. And then he gets angry. And we read, but to Jonah, (laughs) this seemed very wrong that he saved Nineveh and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing in the first place. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Oh, Lord, take my life. I am so down and out. It is better for me to die than to live in this this mercy. But the Lord said, is it? Is it right for you to be angry? Is this right? It's just like Jesus when he said, Father, forgive us. What did he teach us to pray? Forgive us our sins as Father forgives us. Help us to forgive others. In fact, he even said, you, you can't even enter heaven if you can't forgive because that's how important it is. It's this roller coaster of up and down, that revolving door. And sixthly, Jonah prayed, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayers rose to you. There it is, back again, full circle, right back to point one, knowing God. Okay, okay, I know you, God. Then he goes through, okay, I remember again. I knew, he said. See, Jonah knew who God was. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were loving. That's why I didn't want to go. They don't deserve that. See, sometimes knowing the truth isn't always a guarantee we get it right, is it? Jonah knew, but he got it wrong. But it does come back to, I need to know the source of my strength, and it simply is God and his love and justice. The revolving door of sin is going to frustrate us to the day we lay in that casket. I have moments in the morning where I think God is like literally sitting there and by the afternoon I'm about as human as you can get. But time after time, God brings me back regardless. And here's the reality of Jonah's story and countless others like that. Our God understands He knows our persistence to sin and to reject and to rebel. And thus, he says, there's all these teachings about knowing him and we need him. Like 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul says, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power. What power? With the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You need this. You need to know how we lived among you for your sake. This is so key. 
And so the seventh eye, Jonah says, but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you, God. Even though he's going to mess up later, he knew what he had to do. I have to get back to my God, even in the darkest places. If it's in the whale of a mouth, it's Peter in the prison. It's Paul re- suffering all kinds of trials. The ultimate purpose of our lives is not us, it's to glorify God. That means the first purpose, the hardest purpose to grasp, especially in light of our suffering, is the glory of God through it all, all of it. First Peter 1, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, even how we handle our, not, not that we handle perfection, by the way, far from it, but how we handle our suffering brings glory to God. See, that that flies in the face of prosperity and happiness and everything should go your way and trust and faith and belief. No, no. Even in our suffering, C.S. Lewis struggled with the suffering he had to walk through. But he finally reasoned that God commands us to glorify him because it's only by doing this that we will ever find rest, satisfaction, and the joy that we were made for. And so then C.S. Lewis directs us to do this not only because it's simply right, because more so, we need it. The glory of God is of supreme importance. Hebrew word for for glory is kabod. It means weight. Literally, the weightiness. An English word we might use similar to that might be matter. This really matters. This is really important. So when the Bible says that God is glorious, it means he should really carry a lot of weight. It really matters. More than anything else you could ever put weight on, God has to matter the most. And if anything matters more to you than God, you are not acknowledging the glory of God. You're giving glory to something else. So the 8th and ninth, I'm putting them together here, we're wrapping up. Jonah prays two eyes. What I have vowed, I will make good. See, this is the covenant. This is the promises. This is the vows. We recognize His glory, the weight that God carries, and in the process, He covenants His forgiveness and His mercy and His grace. I say God matters because I matter to Him. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus talked about it. This is the blood of my covenant. It's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's how important this is. If you have a spouse that leaves you and you're left in a state of depression, so much so, as I've heard many times before, you say, I I feel like committing suicide, just like Jonah. It means you've given that person too much glory, too much weight. Sadly, we put this weight on everyone's words. We're always concerned what people say about us. I'll walk out of here concerned about what they thought about the message. It'll rattle my brain all day long, so I do something like golfing to get it off of my mind. I used to call my co-worker in the church every sermon, and we'd whine, and I'd whine and grumble about, oh, I should have said this, oh, I went too long, oh, that person got up and left, I don't think they liked what I said. What is that? It's giving you guys way too much glory. I don't want to say I don't care. I care, but you don't get that much glory. 
And this extends to all aspects of our lives, our finances, our circumstances, our health, even death that we face. If anything matters more to you than God, you've given it too much weight and you're given it glory. Old Testament glory meant weightiness, importance. The New Testament Greek word doxo means praise and wonder, luminosity, brilliance, beauty. The tenth eye, Jonah said, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Do you see doxa? Do you get it? Has, has any of this hit home? Can you be awestruck and see the brilliance, the glory, and the wonder of it all, even if we don't fully understand it? Timothy Keller writes, It is not enough to say, I guess he's God, so I have to knuckle under. You have to see his beauty. Glorifying God does not mean obeying him only because you have to. It means to obey him because you want to, because you are attracted to him. Because you delight in him. Yes, God is king and worthy of our worship, but he's a king that came to earth and he didn't come to a throne, but to a cross. Think about that. God is glorious, but there's no greater glory than this, that he laid his glory and power aside and became weak and strong so I could have life. If that doesn't struck awe and wonder, God deliberately sets his heart upon us. Here we have an all-powerful, all-sovereign God that says, I choose suffering so I can extend my love. And you can have salvation. Does it get any better than this? Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are an awesome and wonderful God. In no way do I want to make light of pain and suffering that we will walk through many valleys in this process, that I, I will become furious and angered. I will wonder aloud. I, I, I will question. But God, because I know I have sought you so often and I desperately want to know you, I understand. I don't fully understand, but I'm starting to get it. And Father, my prayer is in, in, in light of the tragedies so many of us encounter, especially those and the families around those that just suffered this weekend, and many represented right here in this room and we'll pray for later. Holy Spirit, teach us. Bring to mind the truths we need to rely on and not the lies that the enemy would have us believe or the lies we tell ourselves. May we honor you with every thought, take captive every thought and bring it before the throne of God and allow you, Holy Spirit, to work truth into our lives and healing where no words will ever do. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Thank you for salvation. Amen.